The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. love to know any information you'd like to share with us and if you'd like to have a visit we'd be glad to meet with you and so please make use of the welcome card in the chair in front of you or download the app you can see QR codes in the foyer just download the app and that has so much of our information here about sermon notes all the advertising and uh, most of all it also has our directory so that you can learn who's in our church family um, one of the things we really want to encourage you to do before, say, Tuesday, is to take some time to go to our website and send a greeting to our missionaries and our partners. Just a Christmas greeting. We've made what are called kudo board cards. And you just click on a link and you can write a note, you can upload your Christmas photo. And we just want our missionaries to know that we're thinking of them and loving them. So if you could do that by Tuesday so that we could send that on to them, that would be wonderful. Uh, as you're thinking of the year-end and maybe year-end giving, I also want to let you know that when you go to our website, whiteridgebaptist.ca, you'll see something that says forward slash give. And when you click on that, it shows you all our giving options in the church. So as you're thinking of your year-end giving, just to be aware of this, that everything to count for 2022 needs to be in before December 31st. So if you're planning to bring something here like a check, please bring that to the office on the Thursday before noon. And anything else, it either needs to be postmarked or if it's electronic, that it's dated on the 31st. So just to keep that in mind. Um, we show our love through how we use our time, our money, our relationships. And one of the things we're doing over Christmas is having two special giving opportunities. And one is just our Christmas offering. And we're kind of taking that until this Tuesday. The offering goal is $3,750. And it's going to be shared between three of our partners. Far Corners Ministry is in India. And that primarily goes to help the pastors care for their children. They need education. It costs $300 a year to go to school. So a lot of the funds that go there will help the children go to school. Then there's Bolivia, the, the seminary, that will go towards the spiritual formation program. And then Prison Fellowship, that is where it's called Angel Christmas Tree. And what they do is they talk with inmates in our prisons in Manitoba and they say, do you have a child that you would like a gift to be sent to on behalf of you? And if they say yes, the inmate can write a note, they tell about what kind of a gift they'd like for about $30, and then it's hand delivered to their child saying, this is from your mom or dad at Christmas time. So that's some of the ways that your funds could be wonderfully used to bless people over Christmas. And the last thing to be aware of is our Christmas hampers. We have 60 families each month who come for hampers, uh, come for Winnipeg food harvest. And I just want to let you know the first 30 families that came last week, we had a hamper for every one of them because you guys actually brought them here. <laughs> and this next week we have 29 of the 30 already. So if one more couple, one more person would say, I'll, I'll make a hamper, that would be wonderful. That information's at the Welcome Center and there's a list of the supplies that you could buy. It's about $50, but what a blessing for each family. So those are some of the ways that we can worship God together over Christmas. And let's continue worshiping him in song. Good morning, church. My name is Sarah. This is my husband, Mike, and we're going to be doing the Advent reading this morning. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Centuries before the coming of Christ, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words to the people of Israel, a people who had been walking in the darkness of uncertainty and fear. Their country had already been torn in half, divided into northern and southern kingdoms. Also, over many generations, this people had experienced a very uneven succession of kings, many of whom had ruled over them selfishly and godlessly. And now they were living in terror, in the shadow of the Assyrian army. 
Indeed, they were a people walking in darkness, but Isaiah had words of hope for them, the hope of a savior yet to come. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This was the good news of the Messiah, who is coming and has now come. Words of hope for the people of ancient Israel, and words of hope for us still. So today, anyone who walks in darkness, take heart. In your time of fear, uncertainty, or pain, be encouraged. Every one of us, even as we struggle with sin, we can rejoice. For Jesus has come to save us and live with us forever. In the words of the angel to the shepherds. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. As some of you know, uh, Marilyn Parker is home after having been in the hospital for a bit, and uh, I was talking to her this week, and, and she said that her very favorite verse in Scripture and that she's clung to throughout uh, so much of her life is just the, the last, last words of Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus says to his disciples right before he ascends into heaven, he says, remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that is a truth that we can cling to because of Jesus becoming our Emmanuel, God with us. And so if you're here this morning, like you just heard in the reading, uh, if you're struggling with a lack of hope today for any reason, be encouraged. God is with us. And we're going to be singing songs this morning that reflect that. And I invite you to stand. Let's sing together. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. 
shall come to thee, O sing glory to the newborn king peace on earth and mercy mild god and sinners reconciled joyful all ye nations rise join the triumph of the skies singing those uh, Christmas songs and carols, how good it is. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah this morning, and uh, I have been sort of soaking in it all week and thinking about it, but before we go to uh, the scripture, Isaiah chapter 9, that we're going to be looking at, I, uh, I want to just uh, take some time for us to spend in, in confession uh, and in prayer before we enter into the word. Um, I was very intrigued by um, this recently, finding out that the lead singer for U2, Bono, was a good friend of Eugene Peterson. And uh, I get that up there. And um, there was an interesting story of how uh, Eugene Peterson, who is a pretty amazing a theologian, died in 2018, most known for reading, uh, translating the entire Bible called The Message in a very common, un- understandable language. And, um, and he had never heard of, of U2 or Bono. And so one day, uh, because of this, the message and impacting the whole group U2, especially Bono, uh, Bono invited Eugene Peterson uh, to, go, to go to a concert. Uh, I think it was in Dallas, Texas. And um, Eugene just said uh, to his, the guy that was handling a lot of his invitations and mail, just said, I, I, don't, I don't have time to go. <laughs> and he said to him, he said, it's Bono! And, uh, and then uh, Eugene Peterson responded because he was in the middle of translating Isaiah. And so he responded by saying, it's Isaiah. (laughs) I just love that. It's just an incredible relationship that they had. In fact, he goes on to talk about it. I'm reading his biography right now, Eugene Peterson's biography, and uh, goes on to talk about how in uh, 2015, uh, he invited, uh, he eventually did go to a concert with Jan, his wife, and uh, 
started to really get to know Bono. And uh, then they invited him to Montana where they have a cottage and a beautiful home on a lake. And uh, they had this interview and they talked about the Psalms. And I would encourage you to actually go to YouTube and check out Bono and Eugene Peterson, The Psalms, and, and listen to his 21-minute interview. You'll enjoy it. And I, I encourage you to do it within the next two weeks because in two weeks, like I do every year, uh, I'm preaching on a favorite psalm between Christmas and New Year's. And so January 1st, in two weeks, I'm going to be preaching on Psalm 33. And I'll probably read it in the message just to give you a sense of that translation work that he did in very modern English. But take a look at that. You'll enjoy the interview, and you'll have a better appreciation of just the relevance of God's Word called the Psalms and for every, every story of life, every experience of life that you could live. And later on, after this interview, and he's back with his group on tour, Bono was asked by someone, why did you do that? Like, what was all that about? this excursion with Eugene Peterson to Montana. And you know what he said? He said, I needed someone to confess my sins to. And they had an incredible experience, and Eugene Peterson never betrayed anything that happened in those days of uh, sharing. I needed someone to confess my sins to. You know, we all have that need. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And we've been talking in our staff meetings about how certain elements get put aside sometimes in our public worship, in our corporate worship. And one of the elements that we need to remember is this sense of coming before the Lord together in worship but in confession And recognizing that every human, whether they acknowledge God or not, every human has this wired conscience, which is hard-wired to be in conformity to the law of God, Romans chapter 1 and 2. And we need to have a sense of coming clean before God. And God has made a way through Jesus Christ for that to happen, as those of us who have put faith in him know. And so, so today I'm just going to lead us in a moment of confession uh, in prayer. But I want to read from Isaiah before I do so. Because Isaiah begins right off the bat talking about the need for confession that Israel had. He says in verse 16, When you stand... Sorry, wash yourselves, he says, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the cause of the widow. And then he says this, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, and though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What an incredibly fresh word to Israel back in the 8th century B.C., and yet they did not heed Isaiah's words, as we will see this morning. So would you join me? And as I pray, I'm going to bring a confession before the Lord on behalf of the church family and you, but also we're going to just lift up a few family needs to the Lord as we think about this church. We, would you join me in prayer now? Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, what an incredible invitation you've given that stands throughout all the time that though our sins be as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. How white the snow is this week. And how pure our souls can be before you. Though we have soiled our souls at times with evil thoughts, wicked deeds, selfish ways, oh God, you know us inside out. You know us intimately and we bring, we bring ourselves to you. We cannot hide in your gaze There's no place to hide. So you know us already completely. And so what is the sense in hiding? Instead, we say, yes, Lord, to you. We confess. We confess, Lord, that you are right when you judge us. And yet you've decided that those of us who are hidden in Jesus Christ, 
that we can be forgiven of sin. And so, Lord, we bring our confession to you, each one of us. Oh, Lord, sins of omission, sins of commission. We don't want to leave this room carrying any further burdens. When you have said, come unto me, all you who are weary (laughs) and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you shall find rest for your souls. Oh, Lord, would you bring rest to our souls as we lift up our confession and as we receive that word of affirmation, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be like wool. We receive that today through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the goodness of God. We receive fresh assurance today that because we hide in Christ, we are forgiven. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. Father, you're a good God. Thank you for your tender mercies. New for us every morning. Every morning, great is thy faithfulness. Father in heaven, we bring to you some of the needs that are in our families, in our, in our church family. We, we lift up to you some of these people that are struggling. Lord, this is a hard time for some people, Christmas, as they go through the grief of memory, missing those that, have, that are not with them. Maybe a first Christmas without someone there to, to be with. Lord, we pray for them. We think this, this morning of Dean and Glenda Ferguson, whose nephew took his own life recently. Oh God, would you surround that family with the reminder of who you are, oh God of hope, God of eternity. And would you minister grace to them and comfort. And Lord, I think of Carol Bergman, who's whose um, dad passed away. We pray for comfort on the family. We think of Marilyn Parker, and now at home, we pray for Glenn and her. Would you raise them up and strengthen Marilyn and help the doctors to know what's up there? Father, we think of those who are uh, carrying children in their womb, just new babies that are getting ready to be born. We pray for health and strength and safety and for those newborns lord that you would bless and keep those parents and watch over them father for estranged ones in families that are no longer talking we want to lift up those needs to you too god this is a painful time of year and those situations we lift them up we ask you could you lord the prince of peace in this season of time do something to bring reconciliation and to heal Would you do that? And for countless other things that we carry, Lord, would you be the light in darkness? And we ask all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, when we read the words of Isaiah, we are reading an ancient text that was written in two different parts. In chapters 1 to 39, we see God confronting his people and calling them out, asking them to return to him instead of in rebellion. He tells them to, that he's going to do something if they don't turn to him. He's going to, he tells them that God is going to raise up other nations to come against his own people because they have turned away. And he's going to do this because he's going to try and bring them back and save a remnant of them. And then in chapters 40 to 66, we see a softer tone in Isaiah as God in that same time reminds people that even as he is going to do that to his people, he is going to turn on those same nations that are instruments of his judgment and discipline upon his people. Countries like Babylon and Assyria and Egypt and Arabia, and he's going to bring judgment upon them and vindicate his people, for he is a loving father. And there's an immediate application of what Isaiah is talking about, as with all the prophets. There's an immediate application in the 7800s BC, but then there's this, sometimes this futuristic prophecy of what's going on that, that probably Isaiah didn't even understand as he penned the words. 
And another application had to do a lot with the Messiah that would come. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulder. Talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, Isaiah has more prophecies of Christ in it than any other Old Testament book. 20 prophecies of Jesus. Now Isaiah prophesied during what is called the divided kingdom, when the ten tribes of Israel in the north had separated from the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south around Jerusalem. This is right after the sons of Solomon, Rehoboam, and Jeroboam have separated into two different kingdoms. And in biblical history, we see this being one of the darkest times in biblical history. We see a dark time. It was during this time that Isaiah had the privilege of ministering to both the northern and the southern kingdoms. He was uh, inaugurated, called at the, the year that King Uzziah died, chapter 6 of Isaiah, 740 B.C., And he reigned over 50 years through four kings of Judah. He reigned. But it was a period of constant decline, darkness in the country of Israel and Judah. In the northern kingdom of Israel, especially centered in Samaria in the north, it was a dark time. We read in the book of Kings over and over again these words. In such and such a year of this king, according to Judah, so-and-so became king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and he reigned in, this, in Samaria for these many years. And then it says, but he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now this pattern is repeated chapter after chapter, king after king after king after king. In fact, 19 different kings, 19 different kings in the northern kingdom. You can see there, a little, someone's done a little homework, the reference there. Bad, 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 extra bad, really bad. There wasn't a lot of hope there. There wasn't a lot of good spots in the northern kingdom. Now, if we were to put the same chart up about the southern kingdom of Judah, you'd have every once in a while bad, bad, good, bad, bad, good. But in north, man, it was tough. Darkness, darkness. And there was darkness not simply because there were aggressive world forces against this little tiny Israel, Not just because there was idolatry and corruption within Israel, but even their own brothers and sisters to the south were against them, and they were against each other. In Isaiah chapter 7, we read of a time when the northern kingdom of Israel made an alliance with the king of Aram and attacked Benjamin and Judah in the south, attacked their own people, killed many of them. In the time of Christ, a group called the Pharisees considered themselves to be the true shepherds of Israel. Most of them were from the south, from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. One of their rabbis said this, the ten tribes in the north will have no share in the life of the world to come. There was animosity between the northern kingdoms and the northern kingdom and the south. In chapter 8, we read of Israel consulting evil spirits, inquiring instead of inquiring of the Lord. There was corruption in the government, corruption in the priesthood. There was disparity between rich and poor. There were superstitions and fear instead of trust in God. Alcoholism was rampant in Israel at this time. Darkness was not just evil or ignorance. It was both evil and ignorance in the time of Isaiah. These were dark times. And 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29, reads of how the darkness ends. It doesn't end with more light in Assyria and in Israel. In 2 Kings 15, 29, it says, In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Aijon, Abel, Beth, Makkah, Janoah, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, Galilee, and all the land of Naphtali. And he came and he laid captive the people and took them to Syria. Assyria. So, so this is the final concluding Nail in the coffin, 721 B.C. for the northern kingdom of Israel. Done. Friends, I don't find it hard to preach Isaiah in Canada today. These are dark times too. These 
times are getting darker, a moral decline, a coming apart, a coming unglued. That's what I see happening. Some would applaud some of the changes as progress, and indeed there's a little bit of that, but overall we see a downward slide. And if indeed the Lord does not return soon, future generations will give commentary and chronicle about this generation indeed as one of the most difficult times of erosion morally. That we should be living at a time and in a country founded as a dominion of God, so glorious and free and full of hope, but instead find ourselves free-falling is nothing short of grievous. We see the word of God ignored. We see society slipping the moorings of moral code, of right and wrong. Increasingly, we see a people adrift in a sea of choices to pursue their own desires, in utter darkness, inquiring of everywhere but God. That's what we saw happening in Isaiah's day. Even the laws of our land being changed to accommodate godless desires. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 14, it says that they were calling evil good and good evil. Gee, do we see that around our society anywhere? Of course we do. And so Isaiah preaches well in Canada today. Read it. You'll find it very relevant. Where's the hope in all of this? After eight chapters of calling out the darkness in chapter 9 of Isaiah, the scriptures that were read by Mike and Sarah earlier, tell us a little bit about the, the hope to come. Before I get to chapter 9 and look at this incredible chapter, I, I want to pause just once more, and I want to just uh, remember. <laughs> remember something that is very special historically to this congregation. Because this past Wednesday, it was that the Sandy Hook shooting took place. Ten years ago, the Newtown Massacre, the shooting. And uh, we had a precious family, the Marcus Green family, that lived among us in our church for a few years before moving to Newtown. And the very year that they were down there was when the shooting took place. And little Anna Grace, Marques Green, was killed, along with several other children. Isaiah, her eight-year-old brother, survived. He made it out of the school. And some of you maybe saw Facebook this past week and, and a CBS special where now the 18-year-old Isaiah uh, gave a, a note-to-self commentary to his, to his little eight-year-old self ten years ago. And uh, he, he, comments, he comments on the life and legacy of his family of faith. It's worth listening to. As long as I live, I'll never forget 10 years ago, right now. I'll never forget 10 years ago flying down to Hartford, Connecticut and being at the funeral of Anna Grace. And I'll never forget uh, standing and being one of those that had the privilege of preaching I'll never forget when a huge choir that was in the Hartford Church surrounded us on the front stage, and they started to just worship the Lord. And I'll never forget, right there, front row, Jimmy and Nelba standing up, raising their hands and worshiping God. And the rest of the crowd couple thousand people stood up and said, oh, that's the tone we're setting today. Well, the New York Times published an article just a week or two after by a guy named Samuel Friedman. It was called, In a Crisis, Humanists Seem Absent. And he observed that all 20-some public ceremonies of those that were shot in the Newtown shooting, all of the funerals were religious services. Connecticut is hardly the Bible belt of the United States. Yet every service turned to faith in God in their grief. He quoted President Obama's eulogy, and it sounded more like a sermon if you heard it. 
And what he found startling, and he writes in this article about it, was that in this increasingly secular society, people were turning to God in the face of tragedy. tragedy. He wrote, it has left behind one very prickly question for me. Where are the humanists? And the conclusion he came to was that what religion offered people at a time like this was not only theology and divine presence, but also community. And then he said this. He said, humanism suffers from the valorization of the individual. In other words, humanism suffers from making the individual the supremacy of everything. Another author, Ronald Rollheiser, writes this about that subject. He says, when we stand before reality preoccupied with ourselves, individualism, we see precious little of what is actually there to be seen. Moreover, what little we do see will be distorted and shaped by self-interest, for our reality is reduced to the size, the shape, and the color of our own inner world. There's no way around it. When you take God out of the equation or when you marginalize God, the individual will reign supreme. Whether it's a king that reigns supreme in 7th, 8th century B.C. Israel or whether it's one of us who reigns supreme in our little puny world in 21st century Canada. When you take God out of the picture, self reigns supreme. There's no way around it. That's how you're hardwired. And so, unbridled narcissism, pursuit of the individual autonomy and self-actualization, call it what you want. As I shared with you several weeks ago, the four pillars of secular humanism is feelings are ultimate guide, Happiness is the ultimate goal. Judging is the ultimate sin. God is the ultimate guess. If it works for you, have at it. The reality of the true and living God. Just a guess. So you say, what does this have to do with Isaiah? Well, Isaiah was not prophesying to a secular culture the way that Canada has become a secular culture, but he was prophesying to a people who at one time had believed in God, followed God, and now had put God completely aside and were invaded by other societies and other cultures and by other idolatry and corruption. God was no longer reigning supreme. They were in darkness. And after eight chapters of this darkness, like I said, in chapter 9, after such a bleak picture, the the first verse of chapter 9 starts with the big word, but. (laughs) But. And he says, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in latter times he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. For the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Isaiah is prophesying about something he only dreamed about for the future, this land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are two of the tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. Those are the two tribes where Jesus lived. Those are the, this is the area of Galilee, the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And 700 years later, after, after Isaiah prophesied, Jesus would make his home there. When it says that God humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, it is a reference to the fact that he he allowed the Assyrians to come in and kill many of the Israelites and deport the rest of them as slaves to Assyria. But the prophecy says that this area would be honored in the future, for this is where the Messiah would come from. Jesus is the great light of Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus is the child that is born in Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus is the son that is given in Isaiah chapter 9, 6. Jesus is the one whose government shall be upon his shoulders, and in, in Jesus will come this new government, this new kingdom. 
And guess where God decides to inaugurate the kingdom of Jesus, the very first days of Jesus' ministry? Guess what? It's in Naphtali, in Zebulon, in, in this area that had been so darkest gloom, the Galilee so despised. And so Jesus is the one that's being prophesied in Isaiah. The king is coming. The government will be on his shoulders. And of his kingdom, there'll be no end. There'll be no end to it. And so Jesus is, or Isaiah is announcing a kingdom that's coming. And uh, it's interesting, in, in Isaiah, or in Matthew, which we're in, in a series on, right? As soon as we get into the new year, we'll get back to Matthew. But in Matthew, he loves sacred geography, so he's often referencing different places. And one of the things he does is he says that when John the Baptist was arrested and getting ready to be beheaded, Jesus goes from Jerusalem back north to his area of Nazareth where he'd grown up. But he doesn't stay in Nazareth. He makes Capernaum his hometown now. And why is that? Well, that's the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, this dark, gloomy area that now is going to be exalted. And it says in Matthew chapter 4, 17, this was to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. Jesus calls the people out of darkness into light. He calls this people that had been downtrodden and so abused by, by domestic kings and by foreign kings and nations. He calls them out. He says, become part of my kingdom. I'll make you a people. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And what kind of king will he be? Well, he'll be a wonderful counselor king, mighty God king, an everlasting father king, a prince of peace king. And the, of, of the increase of his government, there will be no end, for he will reign on the throne of his father David forever. Incredible. And even in gloomy Galilee, there would be hope. So I want to just conclude this time by thinking of the kind of king that Jesus is for us. First of all, if he's a wonderful counselor king, what does that mean? Except that he is the one who understands from the inside out of you exactly what you're going through. He doesn't have to sit with you for hours to understand what you're facing and have you articulated and guess at what your feelings are and how to make a solution. No, he understands from the inside out. He's a wonderful counselor. He comes alongside of you. And he is also a mighty God. In, in other words, he's all-powerful to make changes if you'll give your life to him and let him take the lead. He's almighty God to save and he's this everlasting father. He's not just a king. He's a father that has actually got tender mercy toward you like no father on earth could ever even have. And finally, he's a prince of peace. He's the intent on bringing peace, not just peace with God, but the peace of God in your life. And you know in your private time when you put your head on your pillow at night, if you will give it some thought, you know where peace is lacking in your soul and in your life. And as those of, of us who live on this side of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, how, how should we respond except to say yes to this light of light, to this king of kings, to say yes in gratitude and glad obedience and say, yes, Lord, come into my life and reign in my home and in my heart because you are the king I want over my life. Think about how different King Jesus is. I just made a list here of how different Jesus was to, to all of the, the kings of the ancient world or even the Greek gods of the Greek world. In Jesus, we find a king who truly loves his people and he's not a user. God is not interested in a relationship with you because he wants to use you. Every king used the people for his own ends. He is not interested in you because of he, the fact that he wants you to work on his behalf like other kings. He, he works on your behalf. Incredible. God at work in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. In Philippians 2 it says, and he invites you. 
He invites you to be his children, not his subjects. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, Romans 8, 15, to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. We cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8, or John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. What a king he is. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that he might have life abundant. What a king he is. And he's worthy to be loved and adored, not just appeased like so many kings had to be in the old ways. Titus chapter 2.14, our Savior Jesus Christ gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, in every way that you think of Jesus, he's the kind of king that is completely for you and and serving you in your greatest and deepest need as opposed to all the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel that had gone before him in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali among the Galileans. Jesus is a different king, unrivaled, matchless son of God, And I hope that you know him today. I hope that in the midst of even Christmas, with all its glittery stuff and things going on, I hope you know him. And I hope you know that he can bring light to your darkness, whatever kind of darkness that might be. The darkness of depression, abuse, or hatred. The darkness of addiction or obsession and bondage. The darkness of disease and illness and loss. The darkness of narcissism, individualism, hedonism, and every other ism. The darkness of death, loneliness, and isolation. Whatever your darkness, Jesus says to you, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. May God bless you. you to stand.
mighty king. You are worthy of all You are so very good and so good to us. And we thank you that you are a king who also walks with us. And I pray, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to continue just to open our hearts to your presence and your light in our life, that we might know you more and honor you better. Please bless each one as we go from here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day. We'll see you on Christmas Eve at 5 o'clock.